I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we remember Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who passed away on February 13th. In his nearly 30 years on the court, Justice Scalia was a passionate advocate for originalism and textualism, and he transformed the terms of constitutional debate more than almost any other justice in the 20th century. Here to reflect on Justice Scalia's life and legacy are two of his former clerks and two legal giants in their own right. Lawrence Lessig is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at the Harvard Law School, and he clerked for Justice Scalia uh, in 1990 and 1991. Stephen Calabresi is the Clayton J. and Henry R. Barber Professor of Law at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, and he clerked for Justice Scalia in 1987 and 1988. Larry, Steve, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Steve, you founded the Federalist Society uh, in 1982, and Justice Scalia played a central role in the founding of the Federalist Society. Tell us about his role and how he influenced uh, that yes. event. Yes, uh, Justice Scalia played a, an absolutely central role in the founding of the Federalist Society. Um, as he was, as a faculty member at the University of Chicago Law School, the faculty advisor to the Chicago chapter of the Federalist Society. And the society itself really got launched with a conference in April of 1982 at Yale Law School on federalism. And um, Justice Scalia raised the money to allow us to hold that first conference. He called a foundation in New York, got us a $20,000 grant, and that enabled us to invite speakers and put them up in hotel rooms and to have our first conference. So uh, he was a critical help at the very beginning in the founding of the society, and he continued throughout his career after the, afterward to speak at countless Federalist Society events. He loved the Federalist Society, really made it what it is, Today, so he was a central, central figure, really an indispensable figure in the founding of the Federal Society. Just one follow-up: the Federal Society was founded to uphold principles such as textualism and originalism. In 1982, was Justice Scalia already an advocate for those principles, or did that come later once he was on the D.C. Circuit? Um, in 1982, Justice Scalia already was, uh, I'd say he was an advocate of what was then called interpretivism, and um, interpretivism uh, emphasized the idea of interpreting the words of the Constitution according to the meaning they originally had. He later refined uh, his belief and uh, argued uh, in favor of the original public meaning of words in the Constitution rather than the original intentions of the people who wrote the words. Uh, he had not yet made that step in 1982, but he certainly was an interpretivist in 1982. Interesting. Well, we'll talk more about his philosophy as the conversation continues. Larry, in 1990 to 91, uh, you clerked for him. Justice Scalia was famous for hiring a liberal clerk who would argue with him. 
Were you the liberal clerk, and what was it like to be the liberal clerk? I was, um, although he wasn't. I don't think he was comfortable uh, admitting this fact. Um, when he hired me, um, he had invited me down in the October or the year before, and uh, we had a ferocious ar- argument about statutory interpretation. Um, and um, he asked me to go out and meet with his clerks, and then he called me back in and he said, "Okay, I want to give you the job, um, but you can't tell my clerks that I give <laughs> you the job. Um, you just need to go out there and argue with the, you know, talk to the clerks for a couple hours before your flight, and then and then that's it." So. Um, I was incredibly excited, but I had to go out and withstand the pummeling of these conservatives <laughs> who thought, here's this ridiculous liberal, and we're just going to beat him up for three hours, which they did, and then I left. Um, uh, and uh, and as, I, as they tell the story, um, it was sometime in May when they came to the justice and said, you know, you've got to hire your fourth clerk. You haven't hired your fourth clerk. And he said, in fact, I have. And they said, who? And he said, Lessig, and they were, they were outraged that he had, he had done that. Wow. And and what was it like to be his liberal clerk? Did you argue with him throughout the clerkship? Well, I mean, as you know, most of the cases the Supreme Court decides, it decides unanimously, and most of them are really questions of law, and being liberal or conservative doesn't really matter much on, on those. I mean, there, uh, But there were many cases where, um, you know, my objective wasn't to make Scalia liberal. It was to um, make Scalia the best Scalia he could be, um, which, uh, for me, what was interesting was the cases where there was a conflict between what, you know, a conventional conservative view might be and what originalism would teach. And um, and so in those kinds of cases, uh, you know, it was uh, my job as all of our jobs to to be as aggressive and strong as we could to, to make sure that the right for Scalia answer would be produced. And, um, and sometimes, you know, he, he, he clearly wanted that. He wasn't always encouraging of that kind of argument. I, I clerked for Posner before, and Posner just loves people to disagree with him. And, and I think Scalia, in theory, loves people to disagree with him, but in practice, he can, he, he could have been, you know, he, he was often quite um, punishing about disagreement. But, um, but that was my job, and, and you know, there were a number of times where we had that fight, and uh, I think a number of times that helped. One final question, and I'll ask Steve the same one. Any cases during the term you clerked where his Originalism and his uh, p- policy preferences diverged. Um, yeah, there were a number. I mean, the one that I was closest to was a case about um, how long you could hold someone after um, he was arrested without a without a warrant, and uh, and the justice asked me to go back and um, read, uh, you know, the cases at the founding, and of course, at the founding, the rule was as. You you know present him to a magistrate as soon as possible. If you have to wake the magistrate up, you wake the magistrate up. And, um, and at that point, the court was kind of settled on the idea of uh, uh, of a very lax standard. Um, you know, I think the uh, maximum could have been up to two weeks that you would hold somebody before you would present them. Um, but when I showed this to you know this research to the justice, he's like, okay, that's our position. And Scalia famously dissented in a very strong dissent, saying, you know, no more than 24 hours um, before somebody's presented. Um, and, you know, and that wasn't hard for him. This was, you know, a position that, you know, I think he intuitively had a strong sense of Fourth Amendment protections that were the framer's sense. But that's an example of where the conservative answer wouldn't have been obvious um, with the uh, original position. I love teaching that case in criminal procedure. And he basically assailed the majority for a kind of Goldilocks, a Goldilocks standard for making yeah, up 48 yeah. hours. Yeah, it's a great uh, dissent. 
Steve, uh, the same question to you. Justice Scalia really hinged his constitutional philosophy on the notion that political preferences and constitutional uh, conclusions should diverge. And since his passing, many commentators have noticed uh, many areas in which that was the case, from flag burning to the Confrontation Clause uh, and the Sixth Amendment to his magnificent uh, opinions in Fourth Amendment cases ruling against the government. Can you give us uh, some sense of uh, cases where, where you think that uh, Scalia's co- politics and, and constitutional conclusions diverged because of originalism? Um, yes, during the term I clerked, uh, there were a very limited number of cases because um, uh, Justice Lewis Powell had retired and the ninth seat on the court wasn't filled until the end of February. So uh, my year clerking was kind of a holding pattern. And I can't think of any cases during my year of clerking where his policy preferences diverge from his ruling. But a year or two after I clerked, he did decide he provided the critical fifth vote on the flag-burning case, holding that um, the First Amendment protects the right to burn the flag and to shout uh, uh, down with the USA. And uh, that's obviously an area where his policy preferences diverged from his the law. He did during my term clerking, I remember him sending a memo to Justice Brennan, with whom he was very good friends, um, indicating that they would frequently be allies on constitutional criminal procedure cases. And one thing I was struck with during my clerkship was Scalia's admiration for Brennan. And I remember him telling me at one point that Brennan was one of the few people among the nine justices who really was a pillar and kept the court on focus and made it go. And so he he was not only personally friendly with Brennan, as many people were, because Brennan was a very outgoing person, but he also indicated that he really agreed with Justice Brennan on constitutional criminal procedure and on the First Amendment. And I thought I was very struck by that. That is remarkable. Uh, several commentators have noted that Scalia was probably the most influential justice on the court since Brennan. Both shared a passion for their vision of the Constitution, and we've also learned since his passing that he was especially pleased by the appointments of Justices Kagan, uh, uh, Ginsburg, and Breyer. And he said, in fact, to uh, a, a Democratic White House official, if you keep sending us appointees like this, then I'm going to have to become a Democrat. Uh, did he, his, uh, Steve, his, his uh, friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg is famous, of course, but was he on yes. good terms with, with, with other uh, liberal justices? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, he was friends with Justice Ginsburg from the time that they served together on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, they were friends and allies then. I think they were already going to the opera together and socializing together. Uh, His friendship with uh, Justice Ginsburg was so strong that when her husband was dying, he cut short a European trip and flew back across the Atlantic to be with her and to express his condolences. Um, He was absolutely thrilled by the appointment of Justice Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court. He had really liked her when she was dean of the Harvard Law School. Uh, He apparently lobbied David Axelrod to 
uh, persuade President Obama to nominate Justice Kagan, and uh, he was very, very fond of her. He took her duck hunting to teach her how to hunt, uh, which is a measure of uh, of his uh, closeness with her. He also really, really liked uh, Justice Sotomayor quite a bit, and he mentioned that um, she was very friendly and collegial. And he, he was very touched that, for example, she came to his daughter's wedding. And um, uh, so I think he was, um, and, and he mentioned that he really liked her and that they were both New Yorkers and they both had a New York view of things. They were blunt and to the point. Uh, but he had lots of friendships across the aisle, and um, that's a re- that was always a real inspiration to me to do the same thing and try to have friendships across the aisle. Uh, it used to be the case in Congress that senators and representatives had friendships across the aisle, and my sense is that Congress is now so partisan that that no longer goes on. But with Scalia on the Supreme Court, it absolutely did go on, and... Uh, he was genuinely very good friends with the liberal justices. Those are great examples. And, of course, Justice Kagan reciprocated his admiration when she was dean of Harvard Law School. She said his views on textualism and originalism, his views on the role of judges in our society, on the practice of judging, have really transformed the terms of legal debate in this country. He is the justice who has had the most important impact over the years on how we think and talk about the law. Uh, Larry, do you agree with that assessment of Justice Kagan or not? Um, the assessment of Justice Kagan, I do, of course. Um, and uh, I mean, I was when I learned that he he had taken her hunting, was really astonished both at him and at her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this was a true measure of her devotion to become a committed member of the court. Um, um, but you know, this it, it didn't surprise me. I mean, you know, he had. Um, strong views. He had uh, he expressed them strongly, um, but he was, uh, you know, an incredibly decent, loving person, and he had a sense of the importance of the community and the court. You know, I, you know, Steve and I both saw him at the very beginning of his time on the court. Um, I remember once him remarking to me that he had never had a job more than ten years and didn't think he would stay at the court more than ten years. Of course, he was wrong by a factor of three, um, uh, but. Uh, but I, you know, do know over time that um, that sense of the importance of uh, community um, grew with him, and um, and he could understand what it meant to, you know, live in a family very closely with people for an extremely long period of time. Um, Larry mentioned that you you both were with him at the beginning, Steve. What what to make of the acerbic dissents, especially at the end, that that seemed to be more personal, the one the one that's often quoted as the, the Obergefell dissent recently, he said, uh, I would hide my head in a bag if I ever, you know, joined an opinion uh, that began like this. Did, did, did he become more acerbic as time went on, or, or did the other justices draw a line between the rhetoric of his dissents and, and his personal relations? I think one of the things that happened is that um, the justice uh, had very strong opinions, sometimes expressed them very strongly, and in fact, too strongly. And in his earlier years as a judge and during my clerkship, um, the clerks would sometimes tell him, Justice, this really can't go out the door. You need to revisit it. 
get some sleep and look at it again in the morning and think about toning it down. And he would listen to us. And I remember Gary Lawson having that role with Scalia on the D.C. Circuit. And certainly the, his clerks my year did that as well. I think as his tenure on the court went on for longer and longer, and as the clerks were relatively much younger than him, they stopped being able to provide that editing function. And, uh, you know, all of us, when we write, sometimes uh, if we're very emotional about something, we engage in hyperbole. And I think that, um, it, unfortunately, the clerk stopped being able to prevent him from sending some of those opinions out. Um, they're too bad, and they're very it's un, it, it, they're out of character because, in fact, he really did understand the other side and appreciated and was friends with the liberal justices. And um, so, um, you know, it's, it's too bad that they issued, but, you know, all in all, he had a wonderful career on the court and a huge impact, and he was, in fact, uh, more open-minded than those acerbic dissents sometimes indicated. That's a very thoughtful uh, way of putting it, and it is important for all of us to be judged in context. Go ahead, Larry. I'd love to add to that. Um, You know, I think actually it's striking to hear Steve recount it like that, because by the time I was clerking, it was almost the reverse. Um, You know, when I first, uh, um, before we came up, we were all told to read uh, the Scalia opinion. So we, I remember pulling together um, three binders full of the Scalia opinions and basically reading them um, from front to back. And, and of course, you know, the justice was very, very um, heavily uh, uh, involved and responsible for what came out um, from uh, his chambers. But the first drafts, um, um, at least when I was clerking, he would ask the clerks to write, and then he would take them and edit them heavily. But um, I remember having this very clear sense of, you know, how ghostwriting works, because um, we would all get a sense of what a Scalia opinion was like, and then we would write a Scalia opinion. And Scalia would often tone down our drafts. Um, you know, he would say, this is too sharp, this is too harsh, uh, this is too strong. Um, um, and, and, uh, and, you know, and I think um, that was a product of us basically, you know, extrapolating from the tone and the substance that we'd seen before um, and him feeling some kind of relationship or responsibility for it. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, when I was clerking, I said that he had a practice of, of appointing liberals. And, and I think the, the important thing about that is just creating a context of diversity in the chambers. I'm not sure he was as committed to that at the end. And, and I think that there's a, and that, that I think might have been a real mistake for him, because I think there's a real groupthink mentality that, uh, that can take over a chamber, especially in a very hotly contested context of, um, you know, end of term uh, decision making. That that it's really important to to have a mix of people who can provide some context on things. So I'm I wouldn't be surprised if the opinions that shocked so many of us on the outside, on the inside, they didn't even notice that there was a problem with the opinion because they were all basically on the same line. Very interesting. Yes, I, would, Go ahead. I would agree with Larry on that, and I'd say I'm not sure that he did as actively hire a liberal clerk toward the end of his tenure on the court. I think that was a mistake. 
I think it really does help to have a diversity of viewpoints within a particular chambers. Actually, the year that I clerked, he had two liberal law clerks and uh, Paul Cappuccio, who was a liberal Republican, and then me. And so there was ample airing of different viewpoints. But I agree with Larry that that didn't happen as much at the end of his tenure on the court, and that's, that's too bad. In general, I think all the justices would benefit from having at least one clerk who doesn't share their judicial philosophy who can raise issues with them. Yeah, and I'll say that when I was clerking, uh, Marshall was on the court and um, Stevens was on the court, uh, and Blackman was on the court, uh, and not in none of those chambers was there a conservative. You know, the idea of right. mixing clerks between conservative and liberal was just unheard of in that context. So, um, you know, same, same experience my year as well. A fascinating proposal for reducing polarization on the court itself, some diversity within the chambers. Um, we, we do need to talk about um, the cases in which uh, liberals criticized Justice Scalia for betraying his principles of originalism and textualism. There was something of an academic cottage industry for pointing out those cases. Um, the most celebrated is Bush v. Gore, hard to justify on originalist terms since the framers of the 14th Amendment clearly didn't expect it to apply to voting rights at all. Larry, you were a, a, a severe critic of Bush v. Gore. How do you put it, and are there other opinions that where you think that Scalia was not true to his originalist principles? Well, I certainly think that's true, but like, we should put it in context. You know, um, we shouldn't oversell the potential or the capacity of a theory like originalism to decide cases. Um, you know, I, I think that it has limits, it, and even the strongest proponents recognize it has limits. And where it has limits... You know, I think a justice has a right to, you know, fall back on whatever, you know, motivates uh, whatever view of right and, and truth um, motivates that justice. So, um, you know, often I think uh, these kind of, quote, inconsistencies are really the weakness of the theory rather than inconsistencies. But Bush v. Gore was incredibly hard to understand. Um, uh, you know, a number of facets of it. The most striking to me was actually the opinion um, Explaining why uh, they were uh, they were going to uh, stop the um, proceedings, uh, and you know, reflect his reflection on the idea that if the public knew the truth, uh, they would it would weaken the um, you know confidence in the presidency, which you know seems to me to be completely contrary to the intuition, you know, the idea behind um, a First Amendment and and uh, transparency in in the government. It doesn't seem to be a compelling interest at all, but. Um, you know, so I, I, I think there's lots one can criticize about that. I also think you know, one has to remember the basic, um, you know, that these are humans in a context that was insane. I mean, they were working, uh, you know, that, those chambers were working 24 hours a day, uh, and those justices were deciding things so incredibly quickly. And and I and I, I really think that their big mistake was just not recognizing the limits in their own ability to make um proper judgments under such uh, short times, and and to step back and say, look, the framers had a backstop for this. It's called the House of Representatives, and if there's going to be a problem, <laughs> um, they could take, that that was that was the way that was to be to solved, not to be solved by courts, you know, making decisions in 24 hours that you know stop a national election. Great, Steve. Yeah. We don't need to have a long we don't have a need to have a long debate on Bush v. Gore, but Steve, thoughts on that, and and more generally, what to make of the the cases like. Bush and Gore, like arguably Brown, where originalism and, and the personal preferences seem to 
diverge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, I'd like to say uh, I agree with Larry about the limits of originalism. Um, I think originalism carries you a very long way, but ultimately you need to, as Larry has written, you need to translate the original meaning of a text or a provision in the Constitution so that it applies to the world today. And uh, judges have to do that all the time. And we have to translate the ban on unreasonable searches and seizures in the Fourth Amendment to apply to GPS tracking devices and heat detecting aircraft flying over people's houses and all of those kinds of things. So there is there are limits to originalism. And Judge Bork recognized that in an opinion I worked with on on the D.C. Circuit with him, Ullman against Evans and Novak, where he said in one of my favorite lines, the world changes in which unchanging values find their application. And I think that's exactly right. The underlying constitutional values don't change, but the world changes and the application of the values and the case law changes. And as to Bush v. Gore, um, I published an article in Bruce Ackerman's book on Bush v. Gore. My own view was that the case raised a political question and that the 10th, 12th Amendment committed, textually committed the decision on the presidential election to Congress and that the court ought to have deferred. Um, what I w- would say in defense of Justice Scalia's opinion is that um, if one accepts one person, one vote, as I think one ought to, and if one accepts one person, one vote based on the guarantee clause rather than the 14th Amendment, because I agree with you, Jeff, that the 14th Amendment isn't about voting rights, but I think the guarantee clause does generate the one person, one vote principle. Um, I think Scalia looked at the different counting standards in different counties for hanging chads, and he thought that votes weren't being counted equally, and given one person, one vote, and Reynolds against Sims and Baker versus Carr, I think he thought that the same thing applied in that instance. And, you know, I think he genuinely thought that. Uh, As I say, I think it's a mistake because unlike with redistricting where, where the guarantee clause applies outright, With presidential elections, the 12th Amendment commits the matter to Congress, but no one made that argument, and as Larry said, the justices were working feverishly trying to resolve the issue, and um, as a result, they didn't necessarily reach the right decision. Uh, Thanks for that. Um, Larry, favorite Scalia opinions? Oh, you know, I think flag burning... um, I think uh, the dissent of Morrison. Um, tell, tell the listeners what that is. Uh, so Morrison was the Morrison v. Olson was the special prosecutor case, and the question was whether prosecutorial authority could be vested in a way that removed the president from um, exercising constitutional authority over it. And what's striking about the opinion is uh, Justice Scalia basically foretold. Uh, uh, mess that would be created um, when uh, the prosecutor went after Bill Clinton, um, and uh, you know, quite striking and 
I think if the court came back to thinking about that issue again, obviously they won't because Congress has changed the structure, but um, uh, they would be strongly influenced by that opinion. Um, you know, so I think the cases where he you know, is willing to stand out, stand out strongly and alone or against strong conservative positions, um, the ones that inspired me the most. Great. Uh, Steve, how about you? Favorite opinions? Um, I would listen to dissent Morrison against Olson as being my favorite opinion of his of all time. I actually clerked during the term that Morrison against Olson was decided, but was recused from participating in the case. Um, I think the language in Scalia's dissent there predicting how an independent counsel might abuse power was prophetic. And many uh, Democrats thought it was prophetic, but once they saw how Ken Starr abused his power as an independent counsel. And uh, just to remind the audience, in Morrison against Olson, it was a seven-to-one opinion with the opinion of the court written by Chief Justice Rehnquist. Scalia was the only justice in dissent. And the dissent was so powerful that by, the, by 1999, when the independent counsel law came up for renewal, both Democrats in Congress and Republicans and also Attorney General Janet Reno all agreed that the law was flawed both as a matter of policy and as a matter of constitutional law. And so in 1999, it was allowed to sunset out of existence. And that's just a huge triumph uh, for Justice Scalia's views. Um, on other cases that I really like, I like his dissent in Estrada, which approved the sentencing guidelines. In retrospect, it would have been great if he'd prevailed. The sentencing guidelines led to mass incarceration of many individuals, and I think that's been very harmful and detrimental to the United States. I'm a big fan of two of his recent uh, Fourth Amendment cases, one saying that the police can't attack, attach a GPS tracking device to your car without getting a warrant, and another saying the police can't march a drug-sniffing dog up to your front doorstep without a warrant. And I think they reflect the fact that Scalia believed in pro property rights and the privacy that comes with property rights, and those, in those two opinions, uh, Scalia and Thomas allied with uh, Kagan and Ginsburg and Sotomayor to produce a 5-4 majority for a liberal understanding of criminal procedure, and uh, I like those opinions a lot. Great. Wonderful examples. Larry, you are among the most influential advocates of the argument that uh, the framers' values should be translated in light of uh, changes in uh, technology and society. But my question is, will originalism, as Scalia defined it, be influential in, say, 30 years? Will liberals still feel compelled to make arguments about text and history and translation or not? I certainly think so. Um... You know, but it's hard to make a prediction about this because, you know, in the next, I think in the next eight years, the court could radically change. Um, so, um, but it's hard to imagine us giving up the idea that our object, the objective of the court is to maintain some uh, conception of fidelity with uh, 
constitution's meaning. And and you know, I I, I and, and Steve and many people have been engaged in an in ongoing debate about how best to um, to to maintain fidelity, what fidelity means, and and how how a court can respect it. Um, but it it seems hard to imagine that that enterprise, um, which you know Scalia was so central in reviving. Um, would you know shift dramatically, and we would have a court that um, you know, like the Israeli Supreme Court um, or the Hungarian Supreme Court, you know, basically just thinks our job is to figure out what the right answer is, um, independent of what the Constitution might happen to say. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a long time before people no longer think that his approach is relevant. Uh, great, uh, Steve. Same same question to you, of course. And and will the Federalist Society still? Use text and original understanding as lodestars, or yes, and and, fi- and finally, let me just add, throw into the mix: what what do we ma- what do you make of the fact that only Justice Thomas is a self-proclaimed originalist on the court, and the other conservative justices are not? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the Federalist Society will remain very devoted to originalism, and some just judges on the lower courts who. A Republican might think of elevating to the Supreme Court will be originalist. So I'm quite hopeful and optimistic that another originalist might be appointed at some point in time. Um, I would urge every, uh, everyone on the left, including you, Jeff, to uh, on a nonpartisan basis, <laughs> on a nonpartisan basis, uh, to compare Scalia and Thomas's originalism with the legal realism of Justice Alito and Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts. And um, in the case of, for example, Justice Alito, um, I think he is a legal realist, and he always votes for the conservative policy outcome in particular cases, even when the text of the Constitution points the other way. And so he did not join Scalia and Thomas in the GPS tracking device case or the drug-sniffing dog case. And uh, I think it's actually kind of scary to have someone on the court who just votes their policy preferences. And originalism, I think, really is a a break against that. As Larry has written, originalism does require translation. You have to apply enduring values to facts in the world today. That's what the Supreme Court correctly did in New York Times against Sullivan and in the school prayer decision. Um, I think that originalism is of central importance, but one needs to apply it to current facts. I think the Canadians actually have a wonderful metaphor that explains originalism, which is that they talk about their constitution as being a living tree and the roots and uh, the trunk of the tree don't change, but new branches grow and the tree grows and things uh, evolve out of that. And uh, I think that that's actually an accurate statement. Toward the end of his career, Justice Scalia melodramatically went around saying the Constitution is dead, dead, dead. It's not a living document. I don't think that's exactly right. I think originalism is of central importance. But because you need to apply enduring values to new facts, in fact, you are going to generate new case law over time. 
um, fascinating. I, I want you, this is all riveting, uh, but I want to bring Justice Scalia back into it because he was so human when you both were yeah. recollecting him. Larry, just more encounter. He had such examples of his sense of humor or just encounters with him that will help bring him to life to, for for the for the listeners. Well, I think one of the striking personal characteristics about him was his um, lack of appreciation for how significant he had been, um, or at least his manifest lack of appreciation. I think we, you know, many of us had this exchange with him where we would say, you know, you've won. Uh, you've won this argument. Um, statutory interpretation, he clearly won. Constitutional interpretation, whether there are alitos or not, I think he, you know, radically changed the direction. Um, and it's almost like he he just he just never wanted to be um, uh, consistently on the winning side. He wanted to he wanted to be that fighter, that dissenting fighter. Um, I think as part of you know once he commented that he would never want to be chief justice because to be chief is to always be on the right side, on the winning side, and that's just not the right side um, in every case. And uh, and and this was a I think I found it an endearing measure of. Um, his own humility, um, uh, and um, uh, obviously, uh, um, you know, something I think all of us uh, could be uh, could learn something from. Wonderful, Steve. Examples of his sense of humor, or some final personal anecdotes. Absolutely, uh, I agree with Larry. He was very modest, and he never let his fame and power go to his head. He could poke fun at himself all the time. Um, Two examples of his sense of humor. Um, when he was nominated to the D.C. Circuit, um, there was an FBI background check done on him, as there always is with federal officials. And for your listeners, an FBI background check means that the FBI sends agents around your neighborhood to talk to your neighbors and to your workplace to talk to your colleagues just to make sure there are no hidden scandals that should be known before you're nominated. Well, Scalia, well, he was at the University of Chicago Law School, refused to attend mass at the University of Chicago's Catholic chapel because he thought it was too liberal. And so instead he went to mass at a small Italian church in the Italian-American neighborhood in Chicago. Uh, after he was uh, nominated, um, he was coming out of church one Sunday, and the priest tugged at his arm and said, Nino, stay behind. I have to talk to you. And he stayed behind, and the priest said, Nino, Nino, I have terrible, terrible news. And Justice Scalia asked, well, what's the matter, Father? He said, it's terrible news, Nino. Nino, it's, it's the FBI. They were here yesterday, and they were asking about you. But Nino, don't worry. I told them absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> I, thought, I thought that one was pretty good. Um, another funny story he told about himself was uh, he was driving cross country with one of his sons, and they stopped for the night in Kansas at a motel, and he went up to the desk and asked the clerk for a room, and the clerk said, what's your name? And he said, Scalia. And the clerk said, you're going to have to spell that one for me. And so he spelled it out, and the clerk wrote it out, down, and the clerk looked at it and said, Oh, C 
Scalia, just like the Supreme Court justice. He then identified himself as being one of the same. But, um, you know, in both stories, he was poking fun at himself uh, for, um, you know, his ethnicity and in the case of the the priest for going to this uh, eccentric conservative Catholic church. And uh, that was very characteristic of him because he had a great sense of humor and he was uh, quite capable of telling jokes that were self-deprecating. And I think all of us really appreciated that. Absolutely lovely. Well, this has just been a beautiful discussion. It's time to uh, ask for closing thoughts. Larry, uh, just, just a few beats on what you think Justice Scalia's enduring influence will be. Well, I hope uh, the influence is uh, the importance of a certain kind of integrity. Um, And I don't offer that to say that uh, I think every decision of his demonstrates that. Um, But I certainly believe that his career is a commitment to the idea that uh, justices have an obligation to integrity. Um, and, And that might mean whatever their theory is, they have to stay tied to it, but it's the conversation we should be having about justices, and and I think he will fuel, his work will fuel that conversation for many generations. Wonderful. Steve, your final thoughts on Justice Scalia's enduring influence. Yeah, I, I think there are uh, five things that he. I will quickly, very quickly mention where he's had an impact. Uh, first, I think the, the revival of textualism is likely to be uh, lasting to some degree, and that's quite important. Uh, second, Scalia led a campaign against balancing tasks on the Supreme Court, which I think was quite successful. He favored rules over standards, and I think that's something that's likely to last. Um, I think that he leaves behind a huge legacy of written materials. He wrote a book on constitutional interpretation a treatise on statutory interpretation, which was the first one done by a Supreme Court justice since the days of Joseph Story. And he wrote hundreds of opinions, which provide a huge legacy. And then finally, I think, I hope one of the enduring influences of Justice Scalia's tenure is uh, having uh, the idea that the justices can have friends across the aisle that Scalia can disagree with Justice Ginsburg, but go to the opera with her, can disagree with Justice Kagan, but go duck hunting with her. And in today in Washington, D.C., in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, there's such bitter partisanship that they're not those kinds of friendships across the aisle. And Scalia certainly taught me the importance of that, and I certainly hope that that part of his legacy is something that gets emulated elsewhere. Well, that is a fitting note on which to end and the extraordinarily generous, moving, and illuminating conversation that both of you have had together is a tribute to that spirit of constitutional bipartisanship that Justice Scalia embodied. Uh, Larry, Steve, thank you so much for joining us for a memorable and fitting tribute to Justice Antonin Scalia. Thank you both. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, 
at Constitution CDR. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com backslash panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.